You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are so excited because we have an all new tip to top episode today and we're kicking things off with our buddy Andy Wong, influential food writer and LA scene maker. He sits down with me to chat about the local culinary scene, the community building he is doing through Industry Only LA, and some of the stories he's been covering across the nation. It's a really fun chat. We're so excited that he could sit down and make time for us. And then we have singer-songwriter Rachel Gray, who stops by to hang out before she hits the road for a national tour. She plays some live songs for us, talks about using writing as therapy, the best recipes that her dad would make for her as a kid, and what she's most looking forward to, to being back on the road. So please sit back and relax, and here's Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Damn, I need a friend like me. Wish I knew the secret recipe of how to make a person that Mm-hmm. First I have a cup of honor 
like a person that I need. I really need a friend like me. Snacky Tunes, thank you so much for sitting down to chat with us, taking time out of your busy writing, eating, hosting, man about town schedule. It's, it's good to have you on the show. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks, Darren. So, you know, LA has been through a lot in the last few years, and you've covered a lot of it. And I want to get into some of those stories later. But as a big supporter of the scene, but also a journalist, how would you describe the current state of the city through the culinary lens? I mean, let's just get into it, I guess. I mean, it's a terrible way to start this conversation, but LA in a lot of ways, you know, a few years ago, arguably the most exciting food city in America. Sure. I think post-pandemic, trying to call any place that is fucking stupid because it's very ignorant <laughs> of what's going on, you know, in America, in California, in Los Angeles. And without getting it into it too much, because we're not going to bore your readers with like labor stats I have and things yep, that people yep. tell me about how you know, restaurants, workers want cash, even though a lot of restaurants are phasing out cash and all this other shit that's going on. LA is an extremely hard city to do business in. And most of the big operators that I speak to have told me candidly, sometimes off the record about permit delays, you know, entitlements that take longer, et cetera, et cetera. And the only reason I bring it up is, all right, these are people who essentially have restaurant empires. Imagine how fucking hard it is for somebody with a pop-up who's never done it before, who's now trying to open their first restaurant and then gets a first generation space. And it's just like, wait, it's going to take me 18 to 24 months just to build this shit out. And then I have to get. Mm-hmm. And I, so what I'm saying is that despite that, uh, there are still so many chefs that are just really don't want to leave LA. They're trying their hardest. Yeah. You know? The word pivoted is so stupid, but they've changed their business, you know, like honestly at this point in some cases like 10 plus times, right? And now there's things about how these places who adapted and created outdoor seating to save their businesses might have to pay a stupid amount of money to keep that outdoor seating. And it's just like they're already so day to day. And sort of the one on the record thing that I want to say that I want to give is that like a couple years ago, uh, you know, in the beginning of this pandemic, I interviewed um, uh, Ori and Genevieve um, from Bestie and Bavel, and they basically said, no, they, they said on the record, you know, everybody thinks that like the really successful restaurateurs are like millionaires. Mm-mm. And they told me, you know, we have a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank, maybe. And this is how much our health insurance for our employees is going to cost. Right. So you tell me who is actually making money right now, you know? So it's just, it's rough, but it's still it's vibrant. Rough. Uh, and I still love eating here. And I mean, you know, like every single week if I'm actually hosting a party with 50 chefs, I'm going to visit their places, probably five plus restaurants in a week. I'm eating with 10 of them at a time. And I hear all this. So really, you know, not to be a huge downer, I'm just going to flip it. I really applaud everybody who's still fucking trying this hard because you could probably go do anything else and it won't hurt <laughs> your soul as much and it may not make you as happy. But it will in some it would in some ways make your life easier, probably. You know, away from the business side of things, as far as the community and coming together of it all, how supportive have you seen LA as a whole? And I don't want to be naive because I know there's always drama and people always talking and and like that. But LA versus a New York where I know you do a lot of coverage, spend a lot of time in, seems to have really 
come together in a lot of ways, especially with some of the more recent closings, PRD, Conby, things like that. Like you feel this general support, even what you referenced, Jen Harris's article about um, uh, about outdoor dining and what that means. You feel that there is this community of chefs who are trying to get the whole scene to survive. What is your take on that? How real is that? How much of it is just posturing for Instagram? You know what? I don't think it's fucking posturing at all. And this is bef- and this is pre-pandemic. Like, yeah. You know, maybe later, like as we loosen up, maybe we'll name names. But <laughs> sort of like some things up really easily. Like New York is still very competitive and cutthroat. Yeah. There are still groups that do not go to each other's restaurants. There's mm-hmm. historical stories about certain people who run certain things who got kicked out of somebody else's restaurant. That shit's been going on for years. You know, like there's essentially, you know, maybe blacklist is too strong of a word, but people who like work for one fine dining group are like, Fuck these others guys. We're never going to acknowledge them. When I moved mm-hmm, to LA mm-hmm. eight to yeah nine years ago, the thing that I noticed is, is like somebody would open a modern Asian restaurant and you wouldn't know who they are, and they would just invite everybody, and like Chris from Night Market and Roy would just Roy Choi would just be there, you know. Yep. And you're just like, and I was just like, what's going on? Somebody would open up like a modern bistro in the middle of LA, and then you would see, wait, people from AOC and people from Nancy Silverton's restaurants showed up to this highly competitive restaurant just to sort of like, you know, say hello. And I've definitely noticed that, you know, even as like a bunch of newcomers come in, the ones who are sort of like doing it now sort of like have mad respect for the people who came beforehand. They really, really appreciate the advice that they get. I mean, it's sort of one of the best examples is like, you know, I mean, we'll get into this later, but I co-hosted this party at Pija Palace, which in many ways is like mm-hmm, the hottest mm-hmm. restaurant in LA right now. That's indisputable. It's not me saying that. It's the world saying this, right? <laughs> yes. And there will be chefs, you know, who just had restaurants for a while, who just show up at Avicii's restaurant, showed up at that party, and he literally will just be like, oh, man, I ate at your restaurant, you know, so many mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. I was young. And these are the things I remember. I have so many fucking questions to ask you. And then the famous chef is just like, yo, my man, you've got the hot restaurant. You know, I'm just like everybody else who's struggling. I got all the time in the world for you. Ask me whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. And such a sweet moment on both sides of it, because it's just like, you know, the people who've done it before, they still want to be with the people who are figuring it out now and crushing now. And the people who are crushing it now, they know that they're in a precarious enough industry where it's just like, it's not like you've won a lottery, the lottery and you're fucking done for the rest of your life. No. It's really, you get all these fucking accolades and now I got to go look at my reservations book and deal with the line outside the next day. And someday I'm going to do something else and that line may be gone. And it's going to be good for me to know all these people who've sort of done it before. Right. It was sort of like that. Yep. That Pete Wells just wrote his little Bernadette review about how at the end where he's saying a lot of people want fine dining to die, but he's like, but there's a certain type of fine dining. That's a cultural preserve. There's a certain type of experience where you go to a restaurant because these people fucking know more things than other people do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of those things. And I think the spirit of LA, even though, you know, it doesn't have that super, super high, you know, and fine dining is just like, you know, as I see at all my parties, people with Michelin stars, people with 10 restaurants, literally like having a conversation with somebody who doesn't even have their first restaurant and realizing like, yo, we're happy to know each other. And I see that again and again, honestly. You know, in many ways it's easy or well, none of this is easy to have the new hot restaurant that is popping and is everyone's writing about it and it's being fed through the, the media machine. Um, 
because a restaurant will hit like Bia Palace. Yeah. And you're like, oh, it's everywhere. I wrote it. And in many ways, it is the restaurants that have been around two, three, four years, five years that struggle to get covered in some ways if they haven't settled into like a neighborhood restaurant. We're seeing that now. Yeah, for sure. But but I want to ask because you're such a big supporter of the city, but you're also a journalist and that's your profession. How do you balance that? I want to support. I want to get the word out. I want to give all this love, but I also know that I only have X amount of ink to spill and I have to do this coverage. Yeah, I mean, look, it's sort of shifted in the last few years. And I'll be the first to say it, right? When I was in New York and I worked at magazines, there are like all these strict rules about things that you could and you couldn't do. And without mm-hmm. too much, a lot of them were very good rules and a lot of them were fucking stupid and they're violated every single day by everybody that worked at the fucking <laughs> magazine. Like my kid, right? So yeah. LA, I think that it's all sort of blended together because without getting into what other people are doing, like I came here eight, nine years ago and I realized, wow, there are very, very few people that are actually making money writing about restaurants. And mm-hmm. I'm lucky that I have a couple of gigs. And a lot of them had side hustles. And those side hustles involved like helping restaurants in certain ways, right? And to me, I'm like, okay, that's a little bit weird, but fine. This is how this is how LA rolls. As long as you disclose things, like no big deal. During the pandemic, to me, everything blurred and something more urgent started fucking happening, which is just that like we started having, you know, these real conversations about the end of the restaurant industry as we know it, while Mm -hmm. we were going through whatever, the seventh, eighth, ninth fucking media apocalypse, this shit is over. Yeah, yeah. Vibe that I've gone through. I mean, remember Eater Death Watch? Remember that whole run? Of course. I mean, remember how that shit used to be funny, right? Yes. I. You want to talk about things that didn't age well? The idea of everyone piling onto a restaurant and saying, like, I can't wait for you to lose all your money, everyone to be unemployed and things like that. Now it'd be incomprehensible. Yeah. I mean, there's a moment in New York where – I mean, like, look, I worked at the New York Post for years. Yeah. I get yeah. it, right? But there was a moment where Eater Death Watch, Gawker Stalker, all these things were just yeah. tabloid, right? And yeah. they were really about just fucking with people. And I understood that, like, working in a tabloid, this is what you do. You sort of poke the bears all the time. But what these people – took them a while to fucking realize is they just ended up punching down. It's like for mm-hmm. every time, like, here's Chris Martin's fucking children. You were then like fucking with somebody who's like just essentially like just some medium paid stylist mm-hmm. who happens to know famous people. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, and for every 20 pay, every 20 posts you have about like some new fucking Andrew Carmelini restaurant opening or whatever, you were sort of like neglecting the fact that there were 10 other people who aren't fucking famous trying to open a restaurant, right? right and then right. you get surprised when their shit closed, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think a lot of it blurred. And the reality is, is, you know, I'm very lucky. I've always had enough outlets to write for. I've always had outlets, whether it's Food and Wine or Rob Rapport or Los Angeles Magazine, that allowed me to sort of write the stories that I care about as long as I balance them with the quote unquote stories that they needed or were good for traffic or whatever. And, you know, and I just try to be as fair, as comprehensive as I can. But honestly, I do tell people all the time. It's like, yo, that story doesn't really work for me. And I don't know what the mm. fucking tell is. I know the other publications aren't really signing stuff like this, but maybe go find, you know, ABC angle and then like come back to us. But, you know, when I first got to LA, there was a huge competition where everybody wanted an exclusive on every single restaurant opening. And it was like, yeah, I, yeah. I was yep. Fucking mag and fighting with fucking 
Eater and the LA Times and all this shit. And then they would make, and then a publicist would make four fake exclusives and give one to everybody. Now you have a high profile restaurant and they're literally just like, why won't anybody cover us at all? And it's because the staffing, the agendas, the budgets for all this stuff is down. So I don't have a good answer for this. I think I'm one of the last few that's trying. I'm definitely not the last one. And I'm happy that there's still five or six of us is all I can say. No, of course. Um, before we go to break and, and we get into uh, Industry Only LA and LA Food Gang, I was wondering if you could share one or two stories, um, and these could be a, a top line, that you reported on the last couple of months that exclusive isn't the right word, but you really love that really hit home that you, you felt like this is a story I really cared about, even if maybe no one else covered. Yeah. And I mean, like, I guess technically I was the first on this one, but it's not an exclusive because I don't chase those. I think I was the first by like three hours. I just had a story drop about 19 town, this restaurant that we actually happened to go to together. Yes. Thank you for the invite. Yeah. And it was, and it's just such an interesting moment because this is um, uh, Lin Lu, who's the chef restaurateur behind Sichuan Impression. Clearly, it, like, and again, not just me saying it, the LA Times saying this is probably the best Sichuan chef, certainly the most recognized one in yes. Los Angeles at this point. And she's just like, you know what? I've done that. I'm going to keep doing that. And I want to do something completely different. And sort of the way to sort of explain it to, I don't know, white people who will never go to the city of industry, but could, it's just like, she's just sort of inverted the model that whatever John and Vinny's MB post Tarn roses did where it's just like, this is who I am. And I'm going to make a mm -hmm. fucking LA restaurant based on who I am. So it's obviously more Chinese in those restaurants, but you know, it's just this total, like for lack of a better term, globally influenced menu where she's cooking yeah. stuff that she wants to, you know, with some Asian flavor, but also, you know, you have a, you know, whole colossal short rib, with pineapple. So good. And, so good. And some, right. And you're just like, so is that a Chinese dish? I'm like, well, kind of. Is it a Texas barbecue dish? Well, kind of. There's pineapple. Did she think about Al Pastor when she was making it? I mean, maybe she eats tacos, but I don't even really need to know where that narrative comes from because whenever you talk to chefs about this, it's usually just like, well, I like things that are childhood memories or I, these are the restaurants I like. So to me, that's all the same story where they arrive at. Mm really interesting to me right where there this is a fancy ass fairly high check average um uh, restaurant for the san gabriel valley it's and beautifully designed, designed in a completely different way this way that it does not look like any other restaurant in the sgv you know where like if you would say that like monarch you know humberto yeah. Leon's restaurant, baroque and maximalist this is the exact fucking opposite of that yep yeah better i don't i don't know they're both great in the and they happened at the same time. Literally, mm -hmm. they opened it the same week. And there's still very Chinese things going on. It's like, there's no fucking American restaurant that's going to be like, well, I have a lot of oxtail. I love oxtail. I'm just going to put two oxtail dishes on the menu back to back. And one of them is going to be you know, that like you could eat over tortillas or rice. And guess what? Yeah. I don't have tortillas and I barely have rice. So you're just going to have to eat it however I want you to eat it, right? Mm -hmm. Good cocktail yeah. Um, so you know great cocktail yeah so you know that's just exciting to me because it's like she's opening something that clearly can scale could do well in places you know like the west side of los angeles mm -hmm. but opening it like deep sgv and that is as much of a city of industry deep deep yeah, deep. So deep 
And like she knows about the other shit. She gets sent other deals. I mean, they have a such an impression in West LA, not far from UCLA, that crushes. She knows. But yeah. it's like she's an SGV chef first and she's an LA chef second. But mm. she's just basically taking the idea of what people think of, you know, is an LA chef and being and being like, this is, you know, this is the SGV, right? Yeah. Um, it's a great meal. It's a great spot. It's it's an absolute fantastic night out and you can do inside and then outside by the bar um let's take a quick musical break and then when we come back i want to get into some of the community building that you've done here uh we have a song from the archives here on snacky tunes on heritage radio network Every 
Welcome back to Snack Tunes. We are here with food writer Andy Wong, who's based in LA. And over the last few years, officially, you have started building different communities and beyond just gathering people for dinner. And I want to go back to a little bit to LA Food Gang, which was founded by your your colleague and friend, Crystal Kozer, um, which had started on Clubhouse, which I will admit, I went back and listened to your Air Jordan interview, and it was so interesting to hear about like uh, everyone talking about the future possibility of Clubhouse, and and now maybe where Clubhouse is now is maybe not exactly what everyone thought it was going to be. But <laughs> what I want to focus on time, yeah, yeah, it was a different time. It was a different time. Um, but what I want to focus on is the LA Food Gang, how it started, and was this the first time you thought of starting to bring together more and more people, maybe more people that could fit around, let's just say an eight top dinner table in the LA food scene. Yeah. I mean, it really started because we missed those eight top tables. I mean, Crystal, I think Crystal talked about this on that Air Jordan podcast and we don't have to rehash, but it's like Crystal goes as hard as anybody like I've ever known. Mm -hmm. Like when it, go to restaurants two three dinners a night you'll like be in another city eat a tasting menu and then it'll be two hours later everybody's tapped out she just looks at me it's like yo can we go get tacos here so we really missed the fact that like we would just have like these even if it was one just like really one night like these intense long meaningful hangouts with a lot of people in the industry and outside the industry so she called me um uh you know like during the pandemic i think it was like a january or february and just mm-hmm. said hey Andy, you know about clubhouse and i'm like oh, that's the thing that the fucking tech VCs go on. And I actually love money and I love technology, but I just don't think that's for me. And she's just like, no, we can start a food thing on it. And then like, we basically did like this dress rehearsal thing on a Thursday Mm. with a bunch of, and then on a Sunday, we just launched our first fucking room. And then we invited a bunch of chef friends to come on. uh, And then our friend Yusai, who's this great photographer, podcaster, TV host, et cetera decided that he wanted to be part of it. So, I mean, I guess technically like Crystal and I founded LA food gang and then Usai joined almost immediately. And then, you know, and then I remember like the first time we just invited all our friends and there was like Justin and Anajak, you know, before any of these things happened to him where it was just like, I think it was just like one table in his alley where his friends could come sure. show up. Sure. Talk about his challenges. Shirley Chong in the middle of realizing that gold belly was the only way that she could save her business, but her gold belly was, crushing in a way where she could extend her lease by five years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You would hear all these things. We, we had Victor and Joy from Tacos 1986, Andrew and Michelle from Moose, and just on and on. It was just this fun, like, Sunday night hangout, right? And then at the same time, like, a lot of the Stop Asian Hate movement was happening for, you know, mm-hmm. all of the terrible reasons that we know about. And there are these, you know, prominent, like, you know, API leaders and – um. Uh, also, like API celebrities who would just be on Clubhouse to talk about this, right? And some people, like including Tuan Lee from Vervet, reached out to me and said, Hey, Andy, you're really gathering a lot of people in your rooms. And a lot of them happen to be Asian just because of who, who you and Crystal are. Is there something more we could do on Clubhouse? Hmm. And, I, and at this point, I was just like, Oh, man, I don't know. It's like, I'm not a fucking activist. I'm not a podcast host. We're just fucking around with our friends. Right, but, right. Like one email was like me, Crystal, Usai, Leo from Ricebox, Valerie from Valerie Confections, to and it's like, yo, what are the things that we can do? And 
I want to give everybody credit for being involved, but I don't have enough of a memory to remember who fucking did what, except that like <laughs> I got some of our friends to show up. I got a lot of chefs to show up. You saw I got a shit ton of celebrities to show up. And we did like a one night only fundraiser on Clubhouse and it raised like $60,000. And the wow. people who came on and spoke were like Nikki Nakayama, Mei Lin, Shirley Chung, Wolfgang Puck, Ruth Reichel, but also because Yusai is Yusai. It's like, and this can never, ever be replicated. Because remember, everybody no, who stepped no. home and did this. It's like we had keynote speakers and they were like Lisa Ling and Margaret Cho. And then like Jeannie Mai came on and then Michelle Kwan came on. Whole cast of Bling Empire was there. And everybody's like hitting these things, inviting people to come in the room. And people are literally just like sending us money virtually. And then we got matching funds from like Farmers Insurance from our wow. charity. Like, no, that's, it's like in one night we raised like 50,000 plus got like national coverage. And I think like once we got all the matching it was actually close to 60,000. And so, I mean, that's what, that was peak clubhouse. Yeah. It, yeah. And it's like, it, 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 yeah. Cause even that platform, even that whole idea doesn't even really this, but in that moment you guys were able to come together and create something really yeah. special. The funny thing that I want to say right now, right. Is that like, I always like do these charity events and then I'm like, man, you know, these things take a lot of time. They're fun. It's great for the community. Would there have been more efficient ways to just sort of like figure out how to make money and donate and donate the money? And the reason I bring it up is at the same time we're doing LA Food Gang, there are some close friends of mine that were on Clubhouse and they were in all the fucking rooms with the with the people who created the fucking board apes. Mm. And it's so and I mean, you know the rise and the fall and the re-rise sure. and all that. But we don't like, have enough time to talk about food NFTs today, man. Enough. But it was literally just like generational wealth was being created on Clubhouse at the same time. Yeah. This charity event you can imagine just with a bunch of people fucking around happened too. It's like that. And all I'm saying is that was a wild moment that cannot ever be replicated. But that legitimately is what was happening. Yeah. And, you know, I think this even though Clubhouse has come and gone, I think the spirit of that togetherness and, and being able to bring so many people together caught fire because outside of maybe i don't know the 101 event or like food based sort of like year end lists or you know like LA times food stuff there isn't really a big meetup or coming together of the food industry it's usually like you said dinners or small pockets or things like this but you set up to change that with industry only LA and I wanted to know when you first had this idea and for people who may not be familiar with it, explain what it is and, and its origins. Sure. Um, uh, it's really easy to explain what it is. It's sort of just like there, there's been things like this in New York in like, you know, food festivals all the time. Mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. Private invitation only industry events for chef and restaurateurs where they can relax, you know, share knowledge, you know, decompress in just like this safe, and by safe, I just really mean like off the record environment, right? Mm-hmm. Where they can just like speak freely. And especially now it's really meaningful because at our parties, people have connected each other to contractors, architects, lawyers, funding, PR people, et cetera, because it's like everybody needs a little bit of help right now. So yeah, it really started like, so after Clubhouse, I'm a, we did a a one-day pop-up during AAPI month um, uh, two years ago called Pop-Off LA, where amazing collaborations like Anna Jack with Secret Lasagna, Miss Chi with um, uh, Moosecraft Barbecue, and fucking like Yubo cooked at Majordomo. And this is just really grew right. out of our house thing, right? 
And then we do that, raise some money. We didn't raise as much as we did on Clubhouse. And we're like, okay, this is fun. Do we ever need to do it again? Uh, right. A year later, uh, because of these things, the mayor's office had reached out to me through Ellen Chen, um, who's the co-founder of Mendocino Farms. Uh, and they asked me if I would join this APILA task force that the mayor's office had created. It was this really nebulous thing without much of a plan. But, you know, I, with my really good friend, Carol Chen, who's run some of the biggest food events, I mean, honestly, like in history throughout America, you know, like New York Wine and Food Festival, et cetera, decided, okay, let's do a one-off API market. They called it API LA Market at Smorgasburg. Mm-hmm. So Austin Noodle Food Truck. We had the Brother Sushi, Domi Flowering. I'm actually going to stop naming people because I don't want to leave people out, but just like all these 20 <laughs> plus. And the origin of industry only Honestly, because again, you can sort of tell that a lot of this shit was like unplanned, right? And, but at Smorgasburg, we had a stage that was like sponsored by Gold House and Cape. There were musical acts. It was like this full on party. Mm-hmm. And Leeway Lau, who's the dry age fish king of LA, who owns the joint, was there yep. selling salmon with our charity partner, one of our charity partners off their plate. And he looked at me in the middle of Smorgasburg and goes, We should, because the thing that was great is there were other Asian vendors that want more part of our market that I'll never forget. Like the guys who own Han Chic and Chimelier mm-hmm. came by and just gave fried chicken to all of our tables. And they barely knew who mm-hmm. half the were. They're just good dudes. And Leeway was just like, this is a great mm-hmm. feeling right now. What a, we should just throw an after party at the joint. Hmm. And I'm like, when? And he's like, well, we can do it four hours from now. I'm like, fucking Leeway, we're not doing it four hours from now. People have to, you know, like obviously like load out all this. Stuff. But Leeway's crazy. He would have done and it. And it's LA. People are like, yeah. I-, I can do this if you tell me in three months. Right. So then he's like, all right, fuck it. Let's do it two weeks later. We did it two weeks later. Again, there are probably 20 to 30 people that actively participated hmm. in the API market. Those were the, all the people that we invited, but they brought their staff. They told some of their friends that wanted to meet Leeway or, you know, that knew me. And like suddenly we had like 100 people to join. It was this accidental party. And then... At the end of the party, Lou is like, fuck it. Let's make this a regular thing. That's mm. literally how it started. It, it has never been planned more than that. We have some great sponsors now, like Centauri and Big Noise Beer. But whenever people come to us, and I'm just like, yo, we're happy to have you come. You can get in front of everybody. But I don't want salespeople pitching anybody Mm-mm. any shit. Mm-mm. We don't have official flyers, so we can't put your logo on any shit because we have no material. And everybody's just like, we get it. It's cool. You guys got, you guys have the crowd. You guys have the right vibe. And so I really appreciate that there's people helping us do things like pay security and pay photographers. And the only ask is they come, they sort of do the things we ask them to, and then they stay out of our way. Hmm. And then we decide, all right, let's make this a series because Moose Craft Barbecue volunteered at Leeway's second party. Like, hey, we should host one, right? Avish from Pija Palace couldn't make that second one. And then he said, Hey, can we just have one at Pija Palace? And, you know, and a lot of people have sort of asked since then, obviously, and I appreciate all of it, but really it's like, you get to host one of these parties. If you're part of this community and you've shown up a couple of times and we like your restaurant, that's it, you know, and you're doing a huge solid to the community by opening up your space. So since doing the joint twice, we've had one at Pija Palace. Then we did a bonus one, which was, not technically industry only, but it was like my list plus the Headley and Bennett list plus mm-hmm. some of the people. It was just this crazy ass holiday party at Headley and Bennett. It was a good and one. That, good one. 
Is it like reconnecting me to people I love, you know, like Burritos La Palma and Chitlada? And because again, because this was done so accidentally, I started to feel bad because these things were always oversubscribed. And you'd always forget to invite people because none of us are mm-hmm. doing this as a job, but we do want as many of our friends to come as possible. And then it just happened sort of organically, right? The next one will be adverse, you know, which, mm-hmm. you know, has an amazing stage and has all sorts of great live music. So that one might like skew slightly more entertainment industry because it's verse, you know, we're going to do one at Moosecraft barbecue. That one might skew a little more because it's Lincoln Heights. And because of where Andrew and Michelle grew up, it might skew a little more like East LA and SGV. We just have sure. one at on Monday, and because this was Lunar New Year in Chinatown, it yeah. was like a huge fucking Asian turnout, right? I mean, not just Chinese people, but Thai, Filipino, Japanese, Cambodian, Vietnamese, you know, other things that I'm forgetting. They were all there to the point where, um, uh, you know, people like Jordan Oaken were walking in and almost joking like they had never, even in L.A., they had never been in a party where it just felt like this was like some Asian nightclub or there's so many Asian people there that they felt weird being one of the 20 white people that were there. Hmm. And so each one of them is a little different. And I mean, the only thing I really want to go on the record on right now is just, I apologize in advance. Nobody's ever getting invited to all of these. This isn't because we're trying to be exclusionary. It's because we have capacity issues and also because we're really, really fucking disorganized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's... um... I'll keep that in mind when I see um, you posting about parties and I went, oh, I guess my inbox fell off on this one. And we have a couple volunteers that are helping now right now, but it's just so funny because it's like I've done parties with other people, right? Uh, And they have their lists and I see their lists. And because I'm a, you know, like I'm a journalist by trade and I'm in touch with all these people, I'm just like, I know this list actually started eight years ago. This person's not at this fucking restaurant anymore. This email is going to bounce back. So those lists almost seem kind of useless to me. Mm-hmm. And you just have to make it a little bit organic every time where the people who get invited are kind of the people that like I see in my phone right now, you know? And then the people yeah. who ask really nicely, because if you're a real, you know, if you're like somebody from a real establishment who's just sort of, you know, been peeping this and wants to be part of it. I mean, yeah, we want you to come. I mean, there's probably 20 people that literally just DM'd one of us and said, yo, can we come? And we all send each other. And then the people who organize this, we all text each other and we're like, yeah, that person's cool. Or I know this person. And then they come, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's how I got my invite through a one Kong fan. So, you know, that's how it works. Um, Andy, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to chat with us. If people want to check out Industry Only LA or read any of the great things you've written, where can they go? What's the best way to follow along with your adventures? Uh, it's, yeah, it's all IG at this point. So on Instagram, it's Industry Only LA. Uh, if they want to follow me, it's Andy Wong, W-A-N-G-N-Y-L-A. And I'm pretty good about like posting most of the things that I write about, especially the ones that I care about. So that's the best way to say more. <laughs> That's good to know. If you, if it doesn't get reposted, it was maybe just uh, Andy getting that bag. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Looking forward to dining with you again. Coming out to the next event, we have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. 
is how it all ends But storms and quicks so frequent We forget to pay attention And you remember to warm my hand Yeah, you remember to This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. 
There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Rachel, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for sitting down with us. We really appreciate it. Big fan of your music. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. um, You know, we've talked a lot in the last, you know, few years about what music has done for fans and the connection with artists and singers and songwriters, especially during the pandemic. And you've been pretty open about your music as a form of therapy and a way for you to get in touch with yourself and to help others. How does that drive the songwriting process? Are you saying, like, this is a song that'll make you feel better? This is a song dealing with my feelings? Or is it more of you're emoting into the creative process and then it comes through in the final the final craft and song? It's definitely different for each song. I would explain my music as, like, ripped straight from my diary. Like, mm. you're reading my journal entries every time I release a song. <laughs> uh, very vulnerable. <laughs> very open. Very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know, like, I know that it's going to help somebody else when they listen to it to know that they're not alone. I normally write about things that I never want to talk about. Hmm. And that's my way of making things that are ugly, the situation into something more beautiful. And I'm able to get closure from it. And it gives everybody else the closure that they need, hopefully, as well. You started sharing your performances by hiding your face. And now you've become very public, but... I've always found that having any sort of anonymity, especially in the world of social media and things like that, is such an interesting choice. Um, What made you want to start with not putting your face out there? And then what eventually led to your decision to revealing who you were? I was so shy. Like, Mm. I don't know why. I was always a bubbly, outgoing person my whole life. When it came to singing, it was like, just a stage fright thing where it was mm. just like, I don't know, for some reason I couldn't put my face in the screen. And I remember at one point I was like, if I want to do this for the rest of my life, I may mm. as well just start. So I slowly started like putting my face in the screen more and then <laughs> posting a video on Instagram and then TikTok and all that kind of stuff. So there wasn't anything necessarily specific except for the fact that I was just nervous. I didn't know if people would judge me. I don't know what it was that was like starting with my face in the screen that made me nervous. But yeah, I think it was just a weird stage fright thing I used to have. And you didn't want to go the uh, Orville Peck or uh, Marshmallow Root with some sort of mask or something like that <laughs> becoming part of your look. I knew eventually I would show my face. <laughs> For people who, and it doesn't, not just performers, but artists who are afraid to share their work or afraid to be judged by that, what have you learned by, in many ways, making yourself 
vulnerable and open to the public, both in good and bad ways, what advice could you offer them for people who are just getting started in their own career? Yeah, I think something that's really helped me is just to know that everybody feels the same way. And it's just a matter of who wants to say it first. But the second that you put the message out, the response back gives me like this weird boost of I should keep on doing this because I know that other people wanted to say it, didn't know how to, were too shy to, didn't think anybody could relate to them. Mm. So once I started releasing music and I saw that reaction back, it was like this weird thing in my head where I was like, okay, if I can normalize all emotion, show me crying, show me happy, show me angry. And I'm just this girl that people I'm so thankful for look up to me. Like I want to show that for the rest of my life, just to make that one person sitting in the room feel like they're heard as well. So mm. yeah, I think just showing as much vulnerability as possible allows somebody else to do the same. I mean, there's the flip side of that too, especially with the more negative side of the internet and things like that. Um, which, you know, once you start putting yourself out there, especially as an artist, people who have never, never created anything in their life, except for maybe negativity, right. their way in. For people who might be looking up to you and looking up to your experiences, how do you deal with the negative side of things? I put myself in the person's shoes that are giving me the negative comments. If mm. I actually think about it, if I don't like a video that I see, I scroll. And that's because I'm not trying to project onto somebody else how I'm feeling. If I'm mm. hurt, and I need that to be shown, and I need to give it to somebody else. They don't actually know me. They don't know who I am. They could judge yeah. me off of a video. But just not taking anything personal and knowing that the person doing that is actually struggling on their own and it's all projection has really helped me just go through any hate comment I've ever gotten. It's just a jealousy thing or something that they're struggling with and they're putting it on to me. So just to keep that in mind with everything you do, you're always going to get hate for it. It means you're doing something right. Um, mm. You're just making uncomfortable because they can't do it <laughs> i'll have to remember that the next time someone says something mean about what, what i'm doing all right let's get into a song uh what's the first song you want to play for us we could start with right person right time what's the story behind that one so right person right time was about a relationship i used to be in mm. and it's almost me looking back on that relationship and wondering what it would have been like if we were more mature and older and understood what a relationship was and you know like I feel like every old relationship you're in when you're really young and stupid it could have ended in a great way but sometimes it doesn't yeah. so that's yeah. what that's about um I don't know if being young has anything to do with it and I've gotten older sometimes relationships. <laughs> uh well here we go Rachel Gray right person right time here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network what if we just met? We started back at the first text When you were too shy to talk to me so freely Before you knew me completely And what if we left it? Stayed friends and never addressed it And what if your mom walked in before you kissed me? It would have ended before we had history The stars Be the right person 
Remember those days when we joke about how we'd move in. But now we're moving on. I lost a best friend. Lost your mom. Rachel, thank you so much. It's a great song. And, you know, reading about your life and some of your relationships, I know that you're pretty close to your family. And a lot of the time we have found that people's love for, for music or for food or things like that starts at the home at a young age. So older brother, mother, father, grandma, who got you into music? Who got you uh, into food? Who got you into the arts? The weirdest thing is that there's nobody in my family that is musically inclined in any way, shape, or form. It's so odd. We've gone down the whole family tree. We can't figure (laughs) out where I came from. (laughs) So weird. Um, But we did play music around the house my whole life growing up. Mm. My sister and I were always dancing around the house. And they told me that it was always me like focusing on the music Mm -hmm. when I was little. So they always had an idea of music being in my world, but nobody sings nobody plays instruments it's weird yeah i don't think uh 23 me tests for a music gene (laughs) yeah no i it's it's so odd my family's like tone deaf it's bizarre uh with food though my Mm -hmm. dad my yeah what did he make what did he cook he's the chef of the house he just makes um i don't even know he's made (laughs) so much my favorite of his is his homemade cookies, I have to mm, say. Is he baking up a batch for Valentine's Day? Is he sending them to you? I hope so. He made it for Super Bowl. Okay. That was fun. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Um, you're also following in your dad's footsteps, I read. You're doing life coaching. You're taking after him professionally. Uh, what made you want to get into that field of work along with singer, singing and songwriting? My dad did that on the side. He's not completely like doing that at the moment, but my dad and I have always had a mindset of just helping people growing up. And we've always cared a lot about the people around us. And I've always been inspired by that. 
my whole life, I've just been like a deeper person and we've connected in that way. So I've always wanted to do life coaching. I eventually probably will start studying it just to get to know how people want to connect with other people and understanding all emotions. And I think it would help in my music career as well, just being able to read other people and knowing what they're going through in a better way. I was going to ask, since so much of your song has emotion and a storytelling and is very open in its nature, do you find that really getting a deep understanding of people and what they're going through and connecting with them will eventually lead to a deeper type of songwriting? 100%. I think it's already started to take me into a deeper songwriting Mm. because I don't know. It's also like the more I speak to my fans and get to know them and the more direct messaging going on, I see what they're experiencing as well. And I'm like, wow, I can connect with that. I didn't really know that other people felt that way. And it opens up this whole new catalog of music that I should be writing, or it puts me back into a moment where I was hurt in that way. So Mm. it's always been a thing for me to just understand what everybody else is going through as well and implying it in what I do in my everyday. I mean, it's so interesting because, you know, you can, and I know you're very active on social media and you can look at it and you're like, oh, she's just writing another song and here's another bop or something like that. But you write every day. And it is a, for anyone who's in the creative process, it is a slog. And it is, it's a, it's an, it's a, a luxury to get to write every day. But there are times where you're like, I don't want to write another song. I don't want to write another lyric. I don't want to write another chord progression. Right. But Stephen King did, and Stephen King put out a lot of books. Uh, I think he he wrote every day. Um, how do you motivate yourself to do that? How do you get yourself to sit down, even when you don't want to, and be like, just put something on paper? It's my therapy. I realized that the only way I can actually get closure from a situation is to write about it. So mm. same way as somebody would sit down and journal. And a lot of the time, people don't want to journal. That's not what you want to end your day with. But it helps you get everything out. <laughs> I've gone through my phases of like, I'm going to journal every day. I'm going to be really mentally in Yeah, That ends. And it that comes ends. Back, you know? So a lot of the time, I never force myself. If there's a day where I'm not feeling it, I'm not going to force myself to. But for the most part, I do write every day. And I write down either I write a chorus or I write a full song. I write something. And it's just how I'm feeling. It's my way of getting in tune with my emotions every day. So it motivates me and it like makes me learn more about myself, which is cool. Do you look back at some of the stuff and you're like, this was a day I wasn't feeling it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, this one, this one, this is, this is for me. This is. Yeah. There's some for- where I'm like, we're not, we're not publicly putting that one out. <laughs> you know, when, when they open up the archives, you can be like, here's my creative process. And not every day was a good day. And you, exactly. can, you can really see that. Um, all right. Let's hear another song. What would you like to play for us next? Let's play Colorblind next. Okay. What's the story behind Colorblind? So Colorblind is also about a guy. Oh, man. Um, Okay. (laughs) I see the theme. I see the theme. (laughs) So I was in a talking stage and I was really scared to get in one because the last one I did poorly. (laughs) The talking stage? Yeah. So it's really – it was at a point in my life where I didn't even know how to read red flags or green flags We've thankfully gotten better at doing that. But this song is me being colorblind to the signs of whether they're a good person or not. (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, Well, here we go. Colorblind from Rachel Gray, live here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. 
Kind of caught in the in-between sounds cliche It's not you, it's me Seeing red while I'm seeing green Yeah, I know You can't go fast when you're going slow Can't fall in love if you can't let go How do I know if I don't know If I never knew what's right or wrong If I'm a little bit honest I'm starting to fear the things that I've wanted Like holding hands and talking I'm just a little bit weary when all of the good is too good, it scares me. All the signs are gray in my mind. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just colorblind. Mm-hmm. Kind of hard to open up when the talking stage is where we're stuck. See it and I keep self-sabotaging You can't go fast when you're going slow Can't fall in love if you can't let go How do I know if I don't know If I never knew what's right or wrong If I'm a little bit honest I'm starting to fear the things that I've wanted Like holding hands and talking Staying up all night till morning I'm just a little bit weary When all of the good is too good It scares me All the signs are gray in my mind Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just colorblind Rachel, that was great. I am too old to even have ever been in a talking stage or at least when I was in a talking stage uh it didn't have an official name for it um I'm really happy for you that's a great it's a great thing I I I really I really sort of just got out of dating before the whole app thing and I part of my uh brain and probably my therapy bills uh thank me for not being (laughs) um uh, I, I think I too would have failed at the talking stage. Um, I want to talk about what you have on the horizon because it's pretty exciting because you have a big tour coming up, uh, kicking off in LA at the Knitting Factory, I want to say, yeah. um, which I used to go to the very old original one on Leonard Street in Brooklyn years ago. Love that. Love, love it. it. Love it. Um, what made you want to get on the road in such a big way? What do you got going on that you want to promote? What are you most looking forward to about getting out in the world? It's so much fun being on social media. And I love making those connections and having that base where I literally, I call them my friend base. I feel like I've built a family, but you know, I want to meet them in person and I want to be able to access those connections in real life. That's been my dream forever. So just being able to get on the road, actually sing and perform for everybody, be able to talk to them, actually meet them have that connection face to face will be really cool. Um, and just, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to be singing a lot of unreleased music as well. I'm mm. going to be teasing a bunch. So it's just going to be really fun. It's going to be a cool bonding moment with everybody. When you're out on the road, how much content do you feel that you're having to create as well? Is it show content, travel content show? Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be 
a lot. I'm going to try to record as much as I can just because the people that can't make it, I want them to still be involved in mm. the whole tour and everything. And I don't know, like not everybody can go. So I want to be connected in both worlds. Sure. So yeah, it's definitely going to be the second I'm off the show or before the show, it's content and live streams and content. <laughs> What's your uh, eating plan like on the road? Because sometimes people are like, I'm going to be in this town. I got my burrito spot or I got this great, you know, salad spot or this regional donuts space. Uh, or do you like keep it healthy, pick up stuff from Whole Foods? What's your plan? I'm going to try to keep it healthy because that's the smart thing to do. <laughs> emphasis on the try. Emphasis on the try. We need to enjoy ourselves too. I'll definitely have my favorite snacks. I'll have like the kettle corn popcorners. Yep. My, yeah, we'll have a bunch of that kind of stuff. Overall, I'm going to try to be healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have, I haven't mapped out like the places yet. Yeah, I can't but wait till I'm, someone on your team plays this part of the interview back for you, and they're like, "You said you tried to be healthy. You said, you said you're like, I know, I know, but like, people says it's the best hot dog in the region. So like, let's go. Yeah. Come on, they're gonna be like, Rachel, it's day two. Let's relax, girl. Like, we could have went a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess the important question really is while you're on tour, who's looking after your dog? My family. Yeah. Yep, it's our family dog, so <laughs> I don't need to take. <laughs> sadly no how would your dog do on the on the bus on the van he'd probably hate it but i yeah. would love it he'd be like yeah. my little boy. he's huge so he'd probably take up too much space <laughs> oh my god so with the tour with the new music coming out with everything happening what are you most excited about for this year and the future in your world and everything that you're creating the biggest thing is performing live. I've also been writing so much new music that I'm falling in love with, and I'm so mm. excited to hear all of that with everybody. There's a lot to come. There's a lot to come. But for the main part, it's definitely getting on the road and actually making those face-to-face connections that I'm most excited for. You know, seeing so many bands who I haven't seen since the pandemic and who have put out new music, but obviously a lot of times I'm gravitating to maybe some older stuff because that's a song that means a lot to me and things like that. How do you balance playing the older stuff that some people are like, this is what I want to hear versus the, I love this song. I'm tired of this song. I have a whole new set that I'm excited about that I would love to play. I mean, if it were up to me, I'd perform all my new ones because I love my new music. (laughs) Your team's like, no, no, no. That's not the answer. It's one for me, seven for them. Right, exactly. I will probably ask them, what set list they want to hear. I'll oh, that's nice. switch my set list up a little bit so that I'm not singing the same thing every night. So I will perform all my unreleased stuff and my release stuff for sure. Mm. It's just a balancing act of how many I do per night, but I'll definitely have the old songs that I'm sick of, but nobody else is sick of. I mean, I, I definitely think that setlist.com really made it be like, oh, I, I need to switch up my set. So, because if people start digging around, they're like, oh, it's the same set every night. Mm-hmm. I know <laughs> I know what five goes into six and seven. I know what the, the bathroom break is. Yeah, yeah, Gotta yeah. Gotta switch it up. Gotta switch it up. 100%. Uh, all right. I want to make sure that we have enough time for one last song. But if people want to get tickets on tour, follow on for new music, see all the content, where can they go to follow along? So, rachelgray.com for tickets. My tour tickets are all on my website. For Instagram, Rachel.Gray, TikTok, Rachel Gray, YouTube, Rachel Gray. So pretty easy to find me if you want to. 
Yes, and that's G R A E. Yes, G R A E. Yes. Uh, all right, last song. What do we have? What do you want to take us out with? So, last song will be How Dare You. It's my most recent song. I actually, it's really funny what we were saying before with how, like, do you write about everything? Mm -hmm. This was a song that I went into the session and I was like, I'm not writing about this, but this is what's going on. (laughs) Ended up writing about it. And it was one of my favorite songs I've ever made in my life. Fantastic. Yeah. It's about somebody exiting your life and trying to come back in when it's convenient for them. Boo. Um, And yeah, that's what this song's about. Ugh. (laughs) Terrible. Terrible. Uh, well, Rachel, thank you so much. Also, thank you to your wonderful team for helping set this up. Shout out to Andy Wong for sitting down with us, talking about the LA food scene and Heritage Radio Network for being as awesome as always. Here we go. How dare you live on Snacky Tunes. We will see you next week.
over, never wanted this. I never did, so how dare you miss us? We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Snacky tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.